Hello, this is Greg Perry for The Historical Preservationist. This episode will talk about the English precedent for modern brickwork. The establishment of a material on its proper basis as a factor of good building is recognized by every keen observer of architectural development as one of the most far-reaching of the results brought about in the last few decades by architectural training and intelligent study of the past great errors of building. As a means of architectural expression, every building material seems to have experienced a period of treatment which at one time or another not only forced an abandonment of sound basic usage, but even imposed a stigma of unworthiness which prejudice was slow to remove. Brick as a medium of architectural expression has a worthy tradition. Yet during the 19th century, architects and builders, in their mistaken zeal for mechanical perfection, brought it to its use to a happy end and a credit. Happily, the Gothic revival helped to restore brick treatment to sound traditional lines, and it has since steadily developed in architectural quality. Brickwork detail is a refinement which appears and appeals to particularly to the cultured eye of the architect. It is a wealth of possibilities and, held within reasonable bounds, can be effected at comparatively small cost. The numerous examples of northern Italy show possibilities of beautiful treatment. The Netherlands are full of suggestion, and the work of Tudor and Georgian England has much of value of modern inspiration. It is to point out the beauty and adaptability of Tudor and Georgian precedent that the illustrations must be gathered and compiled to get a reasonable synopsis of what brickwork could and has been. It has been the endeavor throughout the picture to spirit this old work because it was a product of enthusiastic design and the best of brick craftsmanship, both of which are essential to architecture. Brick design permits first a wide choice of variation of surface tone from a wall of diversified color effect to one of quiet monotone of any shade. Simulating dress stone, there is also the opportunity for pattern, such as the diaper, exemplified in old Tudor buildings. Then there are cornices and string courses, copings, and any number of other treatments that can be carried out in standard sized brick with some special ingenuity expended in design and care in supervision of the construction. Today, the brick manufacturer places at the architect's disposal a range of colors and textures that can only employ as freely as the artist uses the colors of his palette. And with the cooperation of skilled brick masons, the effects that can be produced are limitless. An appreciation of English brickwork. In attempting an appreciation of English brickwork, one calls immediately to mind pictures of domestic rather than of civic scenes. A winding village street, perhaps, lined with charming little houses of differing character in various states, many of them built wholly of brick. Others of brickwork combined with half timber and others of plastered brick. Or the picture is of rather <clears throat> more important scale, 
a manor house that has withstood centuries of exposure, an unpretentious, pleasant house displaying fancies in brickwork here and there, maybe in the string course, maybe in the treatment of the porch, maybe in the cornice. And enlarging further our view, we get to the picture of a country seat of that charming and essentially English kind which was wrought in the days when every craftsman was an artist, unconsciously an artist, and therefore the better artist. Compton Winnett is a perfect example of this. It is all a brick, simple in character, with a whimsical play in a twisted stacks and other features that enliven the house. But its art is not to be captured by the foot rule or the measuring tape. It is far too subtle for that. We of the present day, being sophisticated, cannot take the work of those craftsmen and repeat it without the things becoming either a pure affection or a shell without life. It was produced without the aid of architects in the modern meaning of the word, and it is the product of native genius and ability. Local craft traditions affected here and there by the craftsman's contact with the ideas and the manners of foreign workmen or the guiding spirit behind the work. Every worker's participation in the joy of creation is evident in the buildings that remain. Much has been said and written about the influence of craftsmanship on design, and certainly in the case of brick architectural craftsmanship, had a dominating influence, not perhaps so much in the latter work of the Renaissance as in the earlier Tudor work. The world is made up of all sorts and both Tudor and Renaissance buildings have their distinctive qualities which call forth our admiration. But there is no gainsaying the fact that this peculiarity, individual character of the former belongs to the original builders alone. And though we shall do well in trying to emulate their qualities and shall do especially well in trying to obtain that modulated texture which constitutes no little of the charm of Tudor brickwork. It is fatuous to set out to build the old anew. Most of those who have attempted to do this have simply given us modern Tudor, which is as hard as steel, with no atom of feeling in its composition. Because Tudor buildings was craft work, and we can turn with greater advantage to later Renaissance days, especially to the second half of the 18th century. For though the standard of craftsmanship in England was then much higher than it is today, the buildings were fashioned by architects and not by craftsmen. And therein lies a great measure of difference. In the earlier work, very little regard was paid to the niceties of balance and finish which account for so much of the latter work. If you examine, for instance, a piece of Tudor brickwork, you'll find all manner of variations. The face of the wall is not flat in the mechanical sense, which we know. The bricks are not of uniform size. <clears throat> and of course, there is none of that uniformity of color and surface which characterized the earlier machine-made bricks. A brick was not thrown out because it was a little darker or a little longer than its fellows. It, it was a good brick and it was used and the use of bricks then became hand suggested those pleasant diapers which so effectively relieve a large expanse of wall surface exposure. Modern training 
would lead us when buildings such as a wall to see that the diaper was accurately set out. Its diagonals regular, but these things did not trouble the old builders. And the, the, the very fact that they did not lay out their work as we do it on a drawing board gives the equality which is delightful as the individual is. While ready, however, to appreciate all the distinctive charm of a Tudor building, we can delight no less in Georgian brickwork. But before we speak of Georgian, we must recall the work from which it proceeded. Wren was a great builder of brick, chiefly, chiefly because so much of his work had to be done in economically as possible, and brick was cheap. But when opportunity came for display, he would use brick with amazing effects. Look, for instance, at that glowing south end of the Hampton Court, framed by its good Portland stone. There are, too, those many features of brickwork embellishment which were made possible by the use of rubbers and by similar soft and close-grained brick that could be carved, evenly fine-carved. Under the direction of Wren and his immediate followers, the blackened ruins of London gave way to plum-colored brick facade, enriched as the taste decreed and purse allowed, with string courses to mark floor levels and special molded sections for cornices based on classic models. It was then that craftsmen eagerly sought the mysterious of gauged work from Holland and that of the rubbed brick enrichments of the King's Bench Walk and the pilasters of Christ Hospital were built to the lasting glory of burned clay. With so much building, the bricklayer became a man of consequence. And as history records, even an aspirant to the status of architect. From the days of the Great Fire to the hour of Queen Anne's death, English brickwork had a prestige to which homage was paid by the colonists in the distant lands of Virginia and Pennsylvania. During the 18th century, brick was the favorite material in those parts of England where it was easily obtainable. That is to say, roughly the southern half of England, and no matter where we go, still see today those Georgian houses, orderly, showing a sedate face, and the impression they leave us was no better model for inspiration for the houses of our own present day. The Georgian brick architecture depended for its aesthetic effect less upon design, though that was never absent, than upon excellence of handling of a material. Fortunately, the interesting craftsmanship that grew out of the Gothic revival led us back to fundamental principles. And today, not the least interesting work being done is based on careful study and adaptation of this older English brickwork. In the Tudor country house at Newport, which John Russell Pope built for Mr. Stuart Duncan, pattern brick and many of the interesting architectural details of composition of Waynette's has been successfully incorporated in this rubbed brick moldings of the, the entrance to Mrs. Vanderbilt's house in New York City. Mott B. Schmidt was succeeded in reproducing the delicate charm of one of the Georgian doorways in the King's Bench Walk in London. The house built for Alzando Potter in Sasset in Peabody, Wilson, and Brown recalls in the treatment of the wings of the proportion 
<coughs> and dignity what ran so successfully created the Groombridge Place in Kent. These few examples of the English influence precedent upon modern American brickwork obviously reveal the possibilities for the traditional use of brick in architectural design of today. Tudor Brickwork The 13th century saw the beginning of native English brick building as we know it today. It was the outcome of a shortage of timber, coupled with an increasing realization that a brick house was fire resistant. The early work naturally was influenced very much by the work of the Low Countries, which directly inspired it, for the Flemish buildings brought with it them into England the art of brick building as well as that of weaving. Local conditions, however, and the individualism of the English workmen wrought a change, and by the time of the Tudors there was developed a distinctive style of English brick building. Brick was early used in church buildings, and there are some splendid examples of these to be seen on the eastern counties. One of these among which may be cited is the tower of Ingestone Church in Essex, a a magnificent piece of 15th century brickwork. In cottages and the smaller houses of brick were formed and found to be a suitable filling for half timber framing. And this brick was called nogging and took intricate forms of much interest. In Tudor brickwork, diaper patterns were also largely used. These diapers arose from the accidental effects of vitrified headers the commonest diaper is a continuous diamond, and it is to be noted that richness of effect was sought after rather than regularity of the pattern. Door and window openings were finished in stone, except when the more con- con- conventional, conventional brick builder, by constructing his arches, mullions, and transoms of brick, gave to his work the satisfaction of complete, completeness in one material. Brick corbeling is a marked feature of this style, varying widely in its treatment. All of the great gateways have brick corbeling, this treatment remaining and retaining a strong Gothic tradition until well into the 16th century, as at Lower Marnie. Brick chimneys are another noteworthy feature of Tudor houses. Early in the 16th century, there came a new feature, the introduction of terracotta, in the form of decorative emblems and architectural embellishments. This was one result of foreign influence, mainly the work of the Italian craftsmen who were imported by Henry VIII. We see it used on an extensive scale at Sutton Place in Guildford, which is one of the great houses of the Henry VIII period. But this introduction of terracotta was a passing phase, and the new building material was used only on houses of great importance. The main bulk of the Tudor work was carried out in brick alone. Georgian Brickwork Although during the Elizabethan period, brick was even more widely used than during the previous reigns, its interest and elaboration declined for a time with the advent of the Renaissance. This was chiefly due to the increasing use of stone for the ornamental features of buildings. But later, towards the end of the 17th century, There was a marked revival for the use of brickwork, and this continued through the 18th into the 19th century. Georgian is a somewhat elastic term, 
Strictly defined, it embraces the 86 years covered by the reigns of the four Georges from 1714 to 1820. But such definitions and dates have no proper relation to architectural development, which is always a gradual thing. Thus, in the speaking of Georgian brickwork, we need to go back to the end of the 17th century, when Christopher Wren was making such a brave display. Wren's use of brick is characteristic of his natural strength and decision. For church work, he evidently preferred stone, employing brick only for structural utility, and in the core of St. Paul's, or for an economical facing as in St. James, Piccadilly. But in domestic work, he used brick continually, considering it as suitable for the palace as for the terrace house. He appears to have carefully considered the color of his brickwork, as for almost the first time he introduced yellow stocks, and the quality of Wren's brickwork was an excellent to his design. Perhaps his most careful and consistent use of it was at the Blue Coat School in Westminster, which is no longer existing. What may be called the brick style, initiated by Indico Jones at West Woodhay and popularized by Christopher Wren, became the vernacular for the whole of the 18th century. For Queen Anne and George and alike, brick was the medium in which were exposed for comfort and dignity of the English house. In towns, the orders are more apparent, and a quiet use of different colored bricks is a marked feature of the work. Cornices, caps, and windows tracery were kept in red brick, while color contrast was obtained by the use of yellow stocks. Later, windows were frequently framed with molded brick architraves. These used to be four four houses in St. Martin's Lane in London, which showed a remarkably fine use of brick. The facades of these houses, embellished with the Roman Doric order, were rendered completely in brick from the flute of pilasters to the gutter on the soffit of the cornice. American Brickwork America is not lacking in traditions of good brick architecture. The English and Dutch colonists brought with them the principles of brick building generally practiced in the home countries, and after the strenuous days of pioneering had been passed and wealth came to the colonies, brick kilns were set up in distinct abounding with clay and substantial houses, small and modest, to be sure, but embodying the character of Georgian architecture, or built in many scattered localities. The Atlantic seaboard contained the whole activity of the country, and, with its supervision in English hands, it was subject to uniform English influence. At this time, the style of Wren was firmly established in England, and in America it was echoed in church spires, doorways, and interior woodwork in which the favorite post-Renaissance motifs of broken pediments, consoles, and rich carvings were in wide evidence. Brick was the favorite material whenever the purse of the owner allowed, and we have remaining today such splendid examples of this good taste and appreciation of fine buildings as Westover, Homewood, and Monticello. With our own traditions going back to English roots, it is but natural that American architects should study the originals from which our colonial inspirations were derived. The Tudor and Georgian forms are found in England, 
are richer in detail, but more fully developed than their early American counterparts. But the beauty and character that permit and permeate much of American brickwork of the last decade or two are due to the emulation of standards established long ago in England. With the many varieties of brick available today that are not always usually used, used quite wisely, and the temptation that exists due to an appreciation of old work to affect the exact appearance of brickwork that has become aged throughout centuries of exposure to the weather. It may be permissible to recount the salient features of good brickwork that are manifest in the work being done today by the most skilled American architects, as shown in the accompanying book, such as those of Monticello. The artistic value of brick surfaces in their texture and color. Texture produces tone, first by the joints, second by the surfaces of the individual bricks. The most artistic brick wall displays slight irregularities in tone, just as the marble mosaic in which the pieces and joints vary is quite lively and full of character. So the finer brick wall will be that in which the individual bricks have a slight unevenness of texture, and the shade of one brick is not identical to that of its fellows. The brick with a granular and rougher surface, while moderately true in shape, offers a more striking and diversified texture than the finer varieties, and is therefore more fitting in certain types of wall, but the finer brick also has its appropriate uses where the design or character of the work demands a more formal treatment. Recessed panels may be disturbing in effect when they are interrupted by the delightful play of light and color upon the broken surfaces of brickwork. Spotting or contrast, contrasting material, such as inserts of stone, keystones, or voisier, should be avoided if solidity and dignity of design are to be paramount in consideration of the desired effect. While these contrasts give certain piquinity to the design, they are out of scale with the texture of the brick surfaces and detract from the dignity of the general mass. Brickwork is essentially a mosaic with the horizontal joints dominant. <coughs> its scale is set out by the patterns used but chiefly by the size of the units, and it is a mistake to insert into a mosaic a unit of much larger scale and of a different tone without providing a gradual approach to it from the brick surface by intermediate detail. The sudden transition from brick texture to isolated stone, keystones, is staccato. It is in this effect and should be used with discrimination. An excellent example of its proper effect is seen in the Burden House. Used to any greater degree, the facade becomes uneasy from lack of general tone and of the broad, uninterrupted spaces of the brick wall surface. Following the revival of brick buildings, in which the actual nature of merits of the material were recognized, it was natural that the exaggeration should creep in. If a little roughness and irregularity were a good thing, some believe that more would be better, and that we accordingly see misshapen and distorted bricks, with the result that the completed wall seems effectively grotesque to anyone of sound taste. 
Brickwork should be a product of artistic design and skilled craftsmanship, which the wall should fittingly express. But to abandon the traditions of craftsmanship in search of the bizarre under the name of the picturesque or the antique is debasing a good material and laying architectural sincerity open to quite the question. Fortunately, this tendency is disappearing, and there looms ahead an era of architectural development in brick that will not only compare favorably, favorably with any traditional period of the past in matters of design, but far exceed in its rich color harmonies of wall surface, if the material available is artistically handled in harmony with its fundamental character. English rubbed, cut, molded, brick, and their American counterparts. From the very beginning of distinct English brickwork, when it was brought into being in the 13th century, there was a ready adoption of various features of surface embellishment, and no doubt the development of these was largely the outcome of customs which the Flemings brought with them. One would be inclined to think that the diaper was the earliest manner of embellishing a large expanse of wall. But the fact might well be that this was a later feature, and that nogging, corbeling, and the use of strings were the first features. In whatever order they came, however, it is seen that all these various elements were quite commonly employed in Tudor times. Square-headed windows seemed to have been a difficulty prior to the building of flat-headed arches, with radiating voiceurs, a trick that was to become, in Georgian times, the motif of a style. But that this construction was early appreciated is evident from the windows of Rye House in Herefordshire, where the heads are carefully radiated. For splayed arches, both external, as in gateways, and internal, as in church work, molded bricks of various forms were used, some of them with simple, chamfered faces, others with a series of circular members. Cut brickwork was also in use at the same time. In the brickwork of the English Renaissance, the flat rub brick arch was a common feature. Heavy, classic cornices were built up of two-and-a-half-inch bricks, often with dentils and modulations, tiles being used in some cases for the smaller fillets. Effective strings were formed by three or four courses of brick, slightly projected. The climax was reached by architectural embellishments of carefully rubbed and carved brickwork. Fine work, such as ionic capitals, was also done in one block, built up and bonded by the use of resinous substone so that the joints were rendered almost imperceptible. A very fine specimen of 18th century brickwork is preserved in the Victorian Albert Museum, South Kensington. It consists, consists of a predominated feature which once formed the upper part of a house at Enfield. This example, in its completeness, is eloquent and only of the possibilities of car brickwork, but also of the limitations of material. The car pediment is carried on 
a complete entablature with four Corinthian pilasters, between the outer two of which on each side is a niche with a cherub's head at the top and a swag on a panel above. In Georgian times, the lower edge of a flat window arch was often cut half a brick in depth with a reverse scroll, and the brick was key to further ornamentated with a carved thistle or some similar device. This, together with a brick paneled apron below the window, lent an air of grace to a facade severely, severely classical. The bricks so treated in English work were known as rubbers. They were comparatively soft and of fine texture, so as to permit of easy cutting and being further of a bright cherry color. They contrasted well with the wall brick. It was usual to lay these rubbers up with a narrower joint than that employed in the body of the wall, and no attempt was made to accept at the top and the bottom to have them line with the regular wall courses. In Tudor work, much modeled or, to be more accurate, cut brick was used, yet the number of patterns is small, since these were practically all cases cut by hand from the ordinary rectangular brick. The workman of 300 years ago did not elaborate his sections to rank with those of classical stonework. He did not attempt to imitate stonework, but kept his brickwork severe in character with just the requisite oversale of courses and proportion to get the shadows effect that he needed and sought. A good example which indicates the simplicity of Tudor work and brick moldings is shown in dentals in Essex at Greystone Hall, built in the early 17th century. The moldings of the Jams, heads, and mullions is a simple flat, hollow, inside and out, two or three quarter inches by one and a half inches, and the bricks are symmetrical. The transoms are splayed on the top edges. The sills are also splayed at 45 degrees. The inner frame is surrounded on the outside by a splayed outer jam, head and sill, the splay of the latter being steep on the inner two courses. The dimensions of the bricks here are 10 by 5 by 2 and 3 8 inches. And grooves are provided for leaded lights. Joining is shown exactly in accord with the original building. In America, the effects of cut or rub bricks are secured almost exclusively by the use of molded forms or by special instruments in setting up standard sizes. Of such uses, we, we have many examples of these previously shown in the Missions Library at Yale and Vanderbilt House and the Lynx Club. American architects have very highly developed an ap the application of standard-sized brick in securing rhythm and life in the wall surface, not only by patterning but also by using recessed brick courses in arches, string bands, corbel brackets, cornices, panels, pilasters, and the like, which with the color blends and jointings open up an unlimited possibility for sound treatment and genuine art artistry in the facing of the brick wall. There are many modern examples of the use of molded brick for trim, the sills, and the tracery of windows of which a fine example is found in the Missions Library at Yale University. 
where it has been so successfully used that the building looks as though it might have been there since the 17th century. Bonds and mortar in English brickwork. Throughout the Tudor period, long thin bricks were used, and the joints were made with lime mortar. Good brick joints wiped off flush with the wall face. Usually five courses went to the foot, but sometimes an especially thin brick was used, in sometimes cases as thin as one and a half inches. English bond was the bond usually adopted. During the Tudor and Georgian periods, there was no definite uniformity in the size of the bricks. In fact, there is such uniformity today in England through repeatedly an endeavor has been made to establish a standard. In the United States, a standard size of approximately 8 by 2 and a quarter by 3 and 3 quarters or 3 and 7 eighths inches has been adopted for face and common brick. Face joints are commonly struck or tuck-pointed, but with many English architects who have made a special study of old craftsmanship, there is a strong feeling that struck points are indesirable, undesirable, and that the best method of finishing brickwork is with a flush joint wiped off either with the trowel or the wooden tool. The artistic value of brickwork depends largely, largely upon the width of the joint and the color and texture of the mortar used. Broadly stated, a brick of smooth, even surface should never be laid in rough mortar and with wide joints, while one of rough texture depends upon wide joints and coarse mortar for its best effect. The softening and neutralization of masses of red brick by broad white joints is now well understood. But for many examples noted, the problem of handling color in the joints is sure to not to be the one successfully solved. It is a matter that should receive careful study by the designer when attempted. The color of the mortar, when set up and fully dried, is likely to be quite different from its appearance when fresh, and this must of course be considered when the mixing is done. Dark joints are usually set to and are very rigid in their definitions if the brick is light in tone. It is well to keep a dark joint in similar tone to the brick but different in color from it. Similarly, with brick pattern work, exaggeration must be looked out for. The contrast of tone between headers and stretchers need not be great as there will be considerable contrast produced by the regular reoccurrence of the alternate units and strong color differences will destroy the unity of the mass. Brickwork of any period, ancient or modern, owes no small part to creation, a definite scheme of laying its beauty and interest to the method of laying out the bonding. To the casual observer, the ordinary running bond consisting of stretchers only, breaking joints appears structural and satisfying, particularly if the range of color in the bricks removes the monotone of a consistently repeating pattern. But to the eye, the trained structural and decorative surface treatment <coughs> sometimes will be presented in a grain favorable consideration. A definite scheme of laying brick, 
so that both header and stretchers show in the face of the wall provides aesthetic satisfaction and at the same time increases the strength of the wall. Bonding possesses and preserves an important form of purely structural point of view. Since the use of stretchers in large proportion secures strength to the wall and its length, while the use of headers which extend through the wall provides transverse strength. Centuries ago, it was discovered that bricks could be so laid that without the, the sacrifice of structural strength, the bricks in the wall would form a definite pattern. This led to considerable variety of methods of bricklaying or bonds, but with all bonds are derived from three chief wall types, running or stretcher, English, and Flemish bond. Garden wall bond is sometimes added, but it seems to be properly, more properly, a derivation of Flemish bond. All these types are susceptible to endless variations. Running or stretcher bond is that by which a wall is laid up wholly out of stretchers, there being at the end or corner of every alternate course a header which becomes a stretcher after the corner has been turned. The chief objectives to use this bond, as just indicated, are that it becomes monotonous when used in mass, and also that they are possessing the strength lengthwise lengthwise has been built a little strength through the wall. <coughs> a course of headers is often added every fifth or sixth course, the result being what is called common or American bond. Even when the variation given by this use of headers, the resulting wall is likely to lack contrast and interest. And in work of any pretentiousness, it is therefore usual to choose one or the other bonds. English bonds makes use of courses of stretchers alternating with courses of headers. Owing to the large proportion of headers extending through the wall, this bond ensures a wall so extremely strong that it is often used for walls in connection with engineering projects. It is the bond most frequently used in old Tudor work but it has seen and been a little bit used in America because of its expense and lack of preference for its pattern. A variation that produces a more pleasing effect is called English cross or Dutch bond. It consists of having the stretchers of the successive stretcher courses break joint with each other as well as the headers in the adjoining courses on the face of the wall. Difficulties sometimes experience in getting an absolute alignment of vertical joints in English bond. The effort is this direction may not always be compensated for by the result, and the charm of the English bonded wall of Shaw House, in which exact alignment has not aimed at, would seem to prove the point perfectly. Flemish bond is regarded by many architects and builders as the more desirable of all bonds. Each course is laid up of alternating stretchers and headers, a header resting upon the middle of each stretcher. A wall laid in Flemish bond, therefore, presents a succession of Greek courses and is easily made more effective by using brick of different tones and textures at certain points. The basic principle upon which the Flemish bond was laid may be extended indefinitely.
and what is known as garden wall bond is secured merely by using two or more stretchers instead of one between the headers. Both English and Fletch, Flemish bonds require the use of closers, which are split headers, one set next to the other brick opening at the angle and the other of any vertical line, such as a window or door opening in every other course. Production of Face Brick A definition of face brick will be helpful at the time outset as there is often confusion on the subject. A face brick is so-called not because it is a particular kind of finish on its face, but simply because it is suitable for the exterior or interior surface or face of a wall. Thus, any brick which, by reason of its color, texture, or burn, is selected or specially manufactured and carefully laid to enhance the attractiveness of the wall surface in a face brick. In the early days of brick making, and even now, in certain localities where manufacturing was more or less haphazard, the best brick in the kiln were selected for facing. In time, this suggested a little more care in the process of manufacturing. Care in molding the clay, setting the, the wear in the kiln, and burning brought out what were known as stretchers or facing brick. And then, with a growing and diversified demand, modern methods were gradually introduced until the production of face, front, or facing brick, which has become a nationwide industry. During the past generation, there has occurred, as in many other industries, a veritable revolution in the manufacture of brick. The American brick manufacturer has developed a range of variety of colors that would never before existed in the product and exist nowhere else in the world. Not only do different clays burn to wildly different colors, but the bricks in the kiln may be played upon by the flame, smoke, and gases in such a way as to acquire many beautiful varied tones and shadings. Aside from a few colors, secured by the introduction of mineral substances into the clay, the vast majority of brick colors and color tones running into many hundreds are the natural outcome of the clay and the kiln burn. And what gives these colors their essential merit is that they are fixed as integral and permanent set into the brick substance itself. Mere surface texture in a brick wall is an element of great architectural importance and in texture as in color the modern face brick manufacturer has anticipated the widely diversified requirements of architects. The surface textures, textures of brick from the smoothest to the roughest finish exert a subtle and profound effect on the tone of the wall surface only less important than the basal color itself. In a scale of brick Textures, beginning with the smoothest surfaces, with sharp, true arises, the next step may be regarded as the sand mold brick with its slightly rough textured surface. Then comes what is commonly known as the matte brick with a soft, velvety surface produced by the drag of, of a wire over the fresh clay, leaving fine vertical or horizontal scorings upon the brick. Beyond that, a great variety of scarifications is used for shadowing effects. 
These various kinds of clay used for brickmaking may in point, point to a physical formation being grouped under three heads as surface clays, shales, and refactories. As to color in the finished ware, they may be regarded as falling into three classes, red burning, buff burning, and gray burning clays, due mainly to to the varying amounts of iron oxides, lime, or magnesia in, in the clay. Iron oxides tend to produce red, dark brown, and purple color tones in the burn. Lime tends to whitish tones and magnesia to light brown or tan. Lime with the iron runs to cream colors, while magnesia and other iron produces buff and yellow tones. Clays without iron or magnesia burn white. The exact, exact outcome, however, depends on the manner and the degree of the burn, on the amount of each impurity contained in the clay, and on the varying proportions of these impurities present. The surface clays are naturally the most easily mined, as the overburden is light and readily stripped off, while the clay is gathered by scrapers or steam shovels. Shales are clays reduced by heavy pressure in nature to a very dense mass. In some cases, a, a wall or a well nigh mean the consistency of slate. After being stripped of the overburden, a pit is developed where necessary so that the shale bank may be planned from top to bottom by machinery adapted for this purpose. Bitten out, by very powerful steam shovels, or when too hard by such methods, they must be blasted. The surface clays and shales burn to an imaginable shades of buff, red, brown, purple, green, and bronze, and amalgamous tones also. Refractory clays, which, as the name indicates, resist the fire and fuse only at a very high temperature, are usually found in connection with coal measures and must be warned by mining very much in, as is coal. These burns to the buff, cream, light brown, and gray tones. Up to comparatively recent times, bricks were generally made by hand. That is, the soft tempered clay was pressed by hand into wooden, subsequently, or cast iron or steel molds of the proper shape and size, and then slipped out carefully on the ground or onto racks to dry until the bricks were to be put into the kiln. To facilitate the slipping of the fresh clay from the, the molds, the molds before each operation were immersed in, in or sloped in water and sprinkled with sand, hence the expression slope mold or sand mold brick. The old expression, water struck, is another name for the slop mold brick because the molder, after dipping his striker into the water, scraped it across the top of the molds to even up the exposed surface of the clay. In some localities, the old methods still survive, but during the past 50 years, the rapid expansion of trade and a growing demand have necessarily induced the invention of power machinery for the manufacture of brick. For machine-made brick, while the clay, after being gathered from the pit or mine, may be left for a period in the open weather. It is usually put at once into processes of manufacture. Where the material comes in lumps too, too large for the dry pan, 
it is run through crushers to reduce it to the proper size. The dry pan could consist of an encased revolving perforated circular steel plate over which are run contrary vice to the revolving plate, a pair of very heavy rollers. The crushed clay falling through the perforations of the steel plate is conveyed by belts or screens to proper mesh for selection. Whatever fails to pass the screens is automatically conveyed back to the dry pan. The screen clay is then treated in one of three ways. It is thoroughly mixed or plunged or plugged, as it is called, in a box provided with revolving knives to the consistency of a small, soft mud or a stiff mud or is directly used in the condition of semi-dry powder. In the soft mud process, the machine presses the plugged clay into the automatically sloped or sanded molds. In the stiff mold process, the, the plugged or pugged clay is forced by a powerful auger machine through a die of the proper cross-selection in the form of a clay ribbon, which is carried on a moving belt to a slotted steel cutting table where a frame strung with a fine piano wires descends and cuts the clay ribbon into the prearranged widths and lengths. Following the molding or cutting the green brick stacked on cars and are run into the dry house, a long low chamber where the excess moisture is expelled. In the dry press process and the almost dry powder clay is forced onto the molds by extremely heavy pressure and automatically needs little or no drying. They may then be taken directly to the kiln. Most brick are now burnt in permanent kilns which are either of the periodic downdraft, continuous, or tunnel type. Periodic kilns are those in which the bricks are set, burnt off, and drawn to make way for the next batch. Continuous kilns or as the name suggests, are built and connected with batteries so that each burning chamber starts its successor. Tunnel kilns are constructed to accommodate a train or small fireproof cars laden with green brick, which are slowly driven through the fire tunnel to the end where they come out in a finished wear. The burning of brick under modern demands for quality in the product has been greatly furthered by the application of scientific methods of firing, recording temperatures, but still requires great watchfulness and skill on the part of the burner. The great variety in modern face brick does not depend simply upon the clay itself and its preparation. Many effects are secured in the process of machining or molding the brick and in burning. Thus, to meet every requirement or demanding demand of taste, bricks are made with every possible surface texture and in uniform shades with varied flashings.